Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. everyone. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Carolyn Ladowski. She is the founder of MTHFR Support Australia. She's a naturopath, herbalist, and nutritionist who has a Bachelor of Herbal Medicine, a Bachelor of Naturopathy, Advanced Diploma of Naturopathy and Diploma of Nutrition, and a Bachelor of Economics from Sydney University. She has also studied courses in genetics at Duke University and the University of Maryland, from genes and the human condition on behavior to biotechnology. Carolyn works with chronically ill patients from all over the world who have searched sometimes for decades to find the reason behind their ill health. Her strength lies in her ability to reveal layers of dysfunction and not give up until results are seen. Most of her patients have the MTHFR mutation and or associated methylation disturbances. She specializes in genetic susceptibility and how this contributes to biochemical dysfunction and chronic health conditions. Ever since I found out I'm homozygous for the MTHFR genetic SNP, I've been fascinated by the correlation between genes, epigenetics, and longevity. Now, many of you listening to this podcast right now are wondering, what the heck am I talking about? Genetic SNPs are in all of us, and we have multiple SNPs, and unless we are tested for them, we don't know. Our genes are given to us at birth, but they certainly don't define who we are or how we are going to move through life. Epigenetics refers to the impact, both positives and negatives, on how internal and external factors turn on and off genes. Environmental toxins, nutrition, physical activity, and stress are all examples. I've invited Carolyn today to share with us her vast knowledge on genes and epigenetics, specifically the MTHFR genetic SNP and how it may play a role in one's overall health and wellness and what to do to support it. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here, Jill, to talk about this topic. It, I, I love it. I love it. It's, oh, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it's it's life-changing. You know, the yes. if, it's not only life-changing for the practitioner, but it's life-changing life for the person that has really looked and delved into their genetic susceptibility and has found out the reason why they've had ill health or why they've had depression. And you can get amazing results. Absolutely. Before we dive in, and we are going to dive deep on this topic, I want to just um, mention my medical disclaimer. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. The entire disclaimer also applies to all of my guests on the podcast. So Carolyn, how did you even find your way to the um, area of studying genes and epigenetics? Well, I'm a little bit of a biochemistry geek. And so when I was, I thought it was really important for me to be able to understand my patient's bloods. So I used to do, well, I still do lots of blood work and I really make sure that I understand what I'm seeing. I know the functional ranges, I know not what the reference range is because that's useless information. 
what I want to know is the functional range. And I started to see that a lot of my patients had read, uh, at the time it was serum folate. And I thought, why, why do half the population have a high level and half are fine? And I rang the lab and I said, why, why would that be? Why are some people showing high folate? And they said, oh, that's a really good sign. They're eating a lot of leafy green vegetables. And I thought, nah, they're actually not. That does not fit the picture. So I then called the labs and said, okay, what's the significance? What are you actually measuring? They said folate derivatives. And I thought, well, that doesn't help me either. So I started to do this deep dive and Google, why do people have high folate levels? And I just wasn't getting anywhere. And I went to a conference where a doctor in Adelaide mentioned that a disturbance in folate was due to MTHFR. Now I'm going back 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I went to her at the end and I said, what is MTHFR? And she said, Google. And so I literally did, I became obsessed. And what I started to see is if I took those people with the high folate off folic acid and gave them biologically active folate, their level came down and they didn't change their diet. And I thought, whoa, this is interesting. And then I started to see patterns that these people who had the elevated folate also had family histories of miscarriage and family history of cardiovascular disease and family history of anxiety and depression. So I could start to put these pictures together and then it became, well, it's not just MTHFR, it's all the surrounding SNPs and the biochemical SNPs that we need to be operating well for us to be able to have good health. And that's, so how just, I, that's how it started. So when you're talking about serum folate levels that are high, you're talking about that's floating around in our bloodstream. Yes. And so where do we want the folate to go? We want that to enter into our cells, correct? That's correct. We want it in our red blood cell. Right. So we're going to dive into um, what the difference is between folic acid and methylfolate, the two different forms, a little bit further down. But I want to start with some some basics here for my for my community. What is a genetic SNP? And SNP is usually um, it's spelled with a capital S, capital N, and a capital P. So what does that stand for? It stands for a single nucleotide polymorphism. And essentially, what a SNP is is something outside what we expect to see in a DNA sequence. So if you, every single gene in our body has an expected DNA sequence, a SNP is when we don't see what we expect to see. Now that might be something is being deleted, something is being inserted, or we get a change in something. And that change can cause many different things. It might mean that it has no influence on your health. It might mean it has dramatic influence on your health. It might mean that the gene doesn't work at all. Um, And it might mean that the enzyme that is then encoded is either down-regulated or up-regulated. And so that's our job. 
our job is to be able to look at those SNPs and say, right, that means it's upregulated, downregulated, and there's associated health impacts possibly with that. So if we think about it in this term, if it's if we compare it to a tool in the toolbox, and if the tool is a little bit broken or rusted or something's going on so that the tool cannot work in the way in which it's supposed to work, is, would you say that that's nice, a, a good comparison? Yes, I, I, think the, I think the comparison or the analogy I use that I think is very helpful is imagine you're driving down a freeway and in your lane, there's potholes, multiple potholes. Mm. And it doesn't matter how old or new your car is, it's going to be damaged. But if I come along and I plug up those potholes, it doesn't really matter the age of the car, it'll tootle along quite well. Mm -hmm. It's then if you get storms and flooding and rain and environmental influences that can shift you off your path but you're then along with everybody else and you're trying to deal with that environment, you know, mm. the same way as everybody else. And I think if you think of it as a pothole potentially that is going to damage what's going on, it, it then becomes easy to, to say to patients, we're just going to plug up these potholes because some of them are quite significant. And without those potholes being plugged up, your ability to cope with environmental influences and cope with diseases becomes compromised. Mm, I like the analogy. That's great. And how do we even get SNPs? Are we born with them? Um, are they caused by epigenetics? What, what, what happens? We're born with them. Um, and your parents, every, every single person has two copies of every gene. Randomly, you got one of each of your parents. They had no control over it. You had no control over it. It's random selection. Now, what we do know, however, is that let's take the example of MTHFR. If you, you said your homozygous MTHFR, so let's say you go into preconception and you don't do any preconception. Your folate's low, you fall pregnant, you have a child, the influence of not having enough folate on your child can actually last for life. And that SNP is more than likely what we call expressed, which means that the bad components of that that may influence your health are immediately passed to the child. But let's say you did your preparation in you did your four-month preconception care, you optimised your folate, you did everything that you needed to do in terms of getting sleep and eating the right food and not being anxious or depressed, then we know now that that will influence your child's life forever, which is pretty powerful. Hmm. And so the, and then, then the chance of that gene being expressed in your child is minimal because you've given them the optimized folate, it takes the risk away. The gene doesn't get expressed. So if you can think of it, it's both. It really is both. You're born with every SNP that you have, 
but the way that SNP then acts is dependent on your environment. And your environment is everything from what you eat, the, the supplements you take, the viruses you get, the mold you're exposed to, COVID, stress, antibiotics, it, like literally your whole environment. So it's pretty important, these SNPs. It's really important to find out and to know what we're dealing with. Yet most of us are going to conventional doctors. Here in the United States, you're located in Australia, but here in the United States, most people are going to conventional doctors and they are not measuring or testing for genetic SNPs. No, no, they're not. And here in Australia, they've gone so far as to say, the medical fraternity MTHFR doesn't matter. Mm. When we when we first started about fifteen years ago, we couldn't um, test ourselves unless they'd gone through a specialist. And we used to say, "Go and get your MTHFR genes tested," because there was no other way for us to do it. And originally, they said, "Yes, we'll do it. We'll do it." And then they started to get results, and they started to get patients coming back to them saying. Uh, I got my result. What what does this mean? And they had no clue. What do I need to do? They had no clue. So instead of the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, turn, turning around and saying, "Okay, I see there's a you know deficiency here in your education. We need to help you explain what this means and what the potential ramifications are," they just sent out a blanket um, response to say, "We know you're all concerned about MTHFR." our point of view is doesn't matter. Mm. And so as a result, you have all these women who are having multiple miscarriages that are finding out through the work we're doing and the work you're doing that they have the MTHFR polymorph polymorphisms, they're homozygous. They're going to their doctor and saying, I've had three miscarriages, I've got MTHFR, doesn't matter. And that is completely wrong completely wrong because it is it's not as if it's a fad it's pure biochemistry the mthfr gene affects how you make folate and folate is critical for every single element of our health so how could it be irrelevant yeah you know this is a great segue into um talking about genetic SNPs such as the MTHFR one and pregnancy. Um, so I have, I'm homozygous, meaning I have both, both genes from bo handed down but to, from both parents, or I have one of them handed down from each parent. So I'm yeah. double, which is worse because I'm, I, I believe that means that my MTHFR gene works at about a 30% or less capacity instead of 100%. Correct. Right. Yep. But I have five kids, so I didn't have any miscarriage. So I did not have an issue with that. I do remember when my OBGYN wanted to give me a prenatal care, um, the pill, they made, I took it for a week. It made me so sick on the first pregnancy that I never took it after that. And I'm grateful that I didn't because in those prenatal vitamins are folic acid. And that is the non-bioavailable form that our body um, our body needs methylfolate, which is the bio. Can you speak to those two different forms and what happens when we take folic acid um, as part of our 
pre-fam or family planning and prenatal protocol. Yep, I can. And I, I'm actually doing my PhD on this very topic and mm. I'm looking at doing a randomized clinical trial, actually testing folic acid versus methylfolate. Because I really passionately believe we have to change the status quo. Yeah. We have got to get women thinking about, do I take folic acid or do I take methylfolate? So there's actually three different forms of folate. One is folic acid. It's synthetic. It's made in a lab. We don't make it in our bodies. We then have folinic. And folinic acid is an, a, an active form of folate, but it still has to bypass the MTHFR gene or the MTHFR enzyme to be converted. And then we have methylfolate, which is our biologically active folate. It is the form of folate that we go on to use for fertility, for detoxification, for mental health, for you know, neural tube defects. It's, it's actually what the folic acid at the end of the day is meant to make. So the end goal, no matter what you're doing, is methylfolate. Now, the reason folic acid, particularly for people with MTHFR polymorphisms, the reason it's not good is because the body has got to convert it through a multiple of layers all the way down that folate pathway to get to methylfolate. But the problem is your MTHFR enzyme sits at that last step. So if you have MTHFR and you, it is expressing and you can see that there's issues, the last thing you need is folic acid because you've got to have methylfolate to stop that anxiety or depression or whatever it happens to be or stop you miscarrying. And so folic acid has always been around. And the reason that it is around is it's relatively cheap and it's relatively stable. But now that we know so much <clears throat> research and we know about MTHFR, we really need to be converting to methylfolate because that's what we've got to have. Now we've got a secondary issue with folic acid is that the enzyme that helps that conversion in the very first step where it says, okay, great, I've got folic acid, I've got to shunt it down to make methylfolate. That first step is an enzyme called dihydrofolate reductase or DHFR. Mm -hmm. Now DHFR has a limited capacity to deal with folic acid. So 200 to 300 micrograms a day is all that enzyme will cope with. So what happens if it doesn't? Well, we've got people taking 800 micrograms in the US, you have way higher in your folic acid supplementation. Minimum is about 1,000 for prenatal, sometimes higher, sometimes 1,800. Well, that enzyme is shut down when you have 300. Plus, US and Australia, we have fortified foods. So bread flour, even pasta, rice, anything in a package where you see folate, it's folic acid. Yep. So way back when they, they said, all right, let's <clears throat> introduce fortification to stop women having babies with neural tube defects, 
it was a minimal amount, but now everything is fortified with folic acid because it's a great thing to have on your packet. But the problem is we're getting way more than a thousand micrograms, particularly prenatal women and women in pregnancy. So what, what's happening? So this research actually tells us not only does that enzyme get shut down, but it has a pseudo effect of shutting down MTHFR as well. Mm. So we're actually ending up incredibly folate deficient of methylfolate, which is going to affect our DNA. It's going to affect our mental health. So, And, and is this why there's so much folic acid in our blood? Yes. Because the excess yes. gets shuttled there because there's nowhere else for it to go. Yes, that's right. Because... It can't get into the cell effectively because DHFR is stopping it. So the folate receptor brings it in. We've got transporters that bring it in, but the DHFR enzyme isn't allowing it to be processed. And so what happens is it's building up and it's building up. And there's research studies to say this unmetabolized folic acid that's in our blood is actually contributing to cancer. It's contributing to many um, breast cancer and things like that, that we just don't know enough about it. So to say folic acid is what we've always used, it's what we've got to use, is not right. We've got to be actually looking more at this and saying, is it detrimental? Mm, this is just fascinating. Is it something, do you test for genetic SNPs right off the bat with your clients that come in well luckily most of ours already have it so they come to us because they have it and no one else can actually tell them what it means and what they need to do so we do have many of our patients we get a lot of women um, who have had multiple miscarriage or failed IVF and they may not have it but that's the first thing we would say to them we really need to know because there's not just one gene in your folate cycle there's a lot there's not just one gene in your b12 cycle there's quite a few and so again if you've got and i know that was one <laughs> of the things you wanted to talk about but if you've got low b12 doesn't matter how much methylfolate you've got you can't use it right right so there's multiple combinations of genes that you need to be looking at to assess what is the real problem here. So I want to stay focused on the MTHFR um, genetic SNP, but what are some of the other big ones that are out there really just more common than others? And what are they responsible for? The key, the key SNPs that I think we, we see cause the most issues obviously we've got MTHFR I think one of the biggest for me is the B12 transcobalamin 2 gene and think of it like a train it's like a train that ferries your B12 to the cell and so many people with depression particularly have homozygous SNPs in that gene and what it means is that some people who are vegan and vegetarian that don't get B12, they're actually causing catastrophic issues with their health. And, and I can, I, I'm not being silly by saying catastrophic. It is right. catastrophic. Absolutely. It's just, you know, so I think 
anyone that's we see vegan and vegetarians and I must do must say I it's a really big sigh for me and I I I have to have that conversation as in you know what you're doing the wrong thing and we have this crazy phase at the moment where everyone wants to be vegan and vegetarian because of that podcast and I think you just don't know what you're doing you don't know how much you are influencing your health. I believe that vitamin B12 is one of the most important things we have to make sure is 100%. So that's a really key snip for me. The other is COMPT. So Mm -hmm. COMPT is catechol o methyltransferase. We call it COMPT, but it's critical because it not only regulates dopamine production, Um, but it also gets rid of toxic estrogen out of the body. So we are a very estrogenic environment. And as we get older, we have more exposure, more buildup. And even, you know, postmenopausal women, they think, oh, well, my estrogen's low. There's no problem. Well, in actual fact, no, that's the opposite. Their estrogen is built up and it's sitting in the body. That's why they get the fat, more fat, because you need more fat to hold the the toxic estrogen so we see you know weight gain around the middle and weight Mm -hmm. gain around the hips and thighs and you know breasts getting bigger and all these sort of things so that predisposes us to breast cancer prostate cancer in men you know fibroids endometriosis fibrocystic breasts fibrocystic ovaries all these things and because everything in our environment is estrogenic all the plastic all the containers in the supermarkets, all the receipts from the credit card machines, all the plastic bottles we're drinking water out of, cling wrap, all of that stuff that we we just take for granted that's in our lives is incredibly estrogenic. So if your COMPT enzyme is slow, that's really problematic from an estrogen perspective. But from a mental health perspective, it really does create anxiety and it, it creates a lot of feeling of overwhelm. So our job in that instance is to speed up that enzyme. Think of it like a bucket that's overflowing. We need to pull out some of that water out of the bucket to, to you know, let it flow. And so that can really help. But if you have the opposite for COMPT where it's fast, then that is a very big mental health flag because many people who have that fast COMPT enzyme typically um, may have depression and lifelong depression. And so it's also about then our job is, well, how do we top up the bucket and stop too much flowing out? So we've got a different job there. But those people tend to be risky people. They're, They're people that love the sex, drugs, rock and roll, the jumping out of planes, driving fast cars, they need that adrenaline. They're adrenaline junkies, basically. They need Mm. it because that's what raises their dopamine and makes them feel better. They tend to be very creative people. They tend to, they could be artists of any form, but they are also quick to get cranky. So they have a very short fuse, everything pisses them off 
so and I know that's generalizing, but that's- No, but it's it's really interesting because now you're, you're reminding me that in Dr. Ben Lynch's book, Dirty Genes, there's certain personality traits that are correlated with certain genetic SNPs. Yes, I, and, and that's I think why. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, and that's can, why. And so now you've mentioned the MTHFR and COMPT that they both affect our mental well-being. Yes. So, so now people can have not just one genetic SNP, but they can have multiple genetic SNPs. Yes. And our job then is to put the jigsaw puzzle together and say, okay, what do we need to do to bring you back to status quo so that you can continue on life without any major risk? So anxiety and depression for me trumps all. My focus is obviously I'm doing my PhD in fertility and miscarriage and IVF. That's, that's my real passion. Mm-hmm. But my, my co-passion is the anxiety and depression because I see so many people suffering with it that we can make substantial and significant changes in a relatively small amount of time by understanding where is their susceptibility. If we know that they are potentially having major issues with low dopamine, I'll give you an example. My daughter is a low dopamine and I had the worst time with her going through teenage years because she was a risk taker. She was unbelievably, she used to give me heart attacks every day. But if I knew now what I, well, if I, if I knew then what I know now, I'd be able to mitigate that. And I'd be able to give her stuff that gives her the dopamine without giving her, making her go and do stupid things. And so it's, I think it's really important for, doesn't matter who's listening to this, if it resonates with you and you have members of your family of any age that you can see either that fast compt or slow compt, um, you can you can know and 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 understand that just by tweaking can make a huge difference. The other the other snip before we move on that I think is incredibly important to mental health is the Mao A. So monoamine oxidase A, mm-hmm. and it regulates not only dopamine, but mainly serotonin. And it's surprising to me how many people have a slow Mao A, which means serotonin builds up. But Mao A is also critically important in histamine. So those really allergic people that have um, asthma and they have eczema and they have they react to wine or they um, get hives or they have acute anxiety just understanding that that male a gene is slow and looking at all the SNPs around the histamine pathway can can have a huge influence like every single woman who's ever had pms think that you've got two issues You've got a histamine problem and you've got an estrogen problem. If you know that, I will will tell you now, Jill, you shouldn't have PMS. No one should. So if any of your older women had PMS and, and when they went through menopause, it was a huge relief, 
I'd still say you have a histamine and an estrogen problem and mm. that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So, so Mal A, I'll just finish on the Mal A because it's if serotonin doesn't break down or get to where it needs to get to, you can actually see severe OCD with both high serotonin and low yep. serotonin yep. and almost psychosis. I say that not in the true sense of the word, but I, I call it psychosis because it's they're, they're fearful. The fear is unbelievable. They don't want to go out. They don't want to socialize. They don't want to um, engage in life really. And the OCD becomes such a huge problem with the mood that you can dissipate a lot of that if you just know what's going on with those genetics. It's just fascinating information, you know, as a mother of five. And like I said, you know, I'm grateful I didn't have or experience any miscarriages, but I certainly um, handed down the MTHFR gene that I know of to all five of my kids. They all have some combination of the variant. Um, and my and their father also has it. And we experienced with the five kids anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, addiction, all of the things we're talking about now. And not once did any of their doctors who were conventional doctors um, ever suggest to get tested for genetic SNPs. Instead, they were put on SSRIs and this and that, you know, something to keep them focused, something to help them go to sleep as young, you know, as young kids. Mm-hmm. And now, now, of course, being that I'm um, much more into biohacking and understand genetics and epigenetics because of my profession, I've been able to help mitigate lots of symptoms by helping them um, stay on on course. But what is, are there any detrimental effects for someone who has any of these SNPs to be on something like an SSRI? Well, if your MAO-A is slow, 100%, that, that could send you suicidal because an SSRI is raising serotonin. But if your problem is too high a serotonin that's not being dissipated and got rid of, then that could make you suicidal. And we've had many instances, particularly in children, funnily enough, where they've been put on an SSRI. When we've looked at their genetics and said, uh, hang on, this you shouldn't be on this SSRI. So we've had to do urgent correspondence to their psychiatrist to say, hey, you need to get them off. Now, sometimes we took one, there's a a family that um, I look after and it was so sad because their daughter was so suicidal. They actually couldn't leave her for one minute. They had to Mm -hmm. sleep with her. They had to stand outside the bathroom when she went to the toilet. They had to Mm -hmm. sit in the bathroom when she had a shower. Like it was that bad. And I wrote to her psychiatrist and said, she needs to get off it. And you know, it took them nine months to do it. And the second she came off it and changed the medication, no more suicidal ideation. And it's it's just, unfortunately, you don't get a lot of um, cohesive um, sharing of patients. We have, I work with a lot of amazing doctors that we will 
share information, we'll work with patients together. But when you look at that psychiatry model, unfortunately, they're in a world of their own. Yeah. And it's a not made here syndrome. I don't know about it. Therefore, it doesn't matter. And when for me to understand that someone, like as a psychiatrist, if I wanted to turn around and say, all right, I'm just going to work out which is the best antidepressant for you. And I'm going to do a genetic profile just to make sure I'm not giving you the wrong medication. Wouldn't you think that would be a great idea? I would, mm -hmm. but they just don't seem to be interested. Now, whether it's because their training doesn't go there, like I, I think how amazing would it be to, if I could go to all these conferences and say, look, this is what you need to know. This is, this is the information that can change your patient outcomes, that mm -hmm. it can improve what you're doing, even though we don't necessarily want everyone on antidepressants, but there is a time and place where some people need to be on it. Yeah. But if you could understand why they're depressed in the first place, you can then, you know, really target your treatment protocol to the genes to, to really give them what they need as an individual, not what the mass market need. Oh, we'll just give you an SSRI. So I, I want to bring the mental health um, conversation full circle and talk about, well, if we're not going to prescribe SSRIs, for example, what would you suggest to help mitigate symptoms of anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD? Well, the number one thing is that every, every woman who is considering preconception has to take a prenatal with methylfolate, yep. number one. Don't, don't use, because we know how important that is for the four months pre-falling pregnant. So I'd say any of your younger audience, think about it that far back. But anyone who is in that space that already has the anxiety or the depression, it then comes down to, okay, how long has it been going on? If it's a lifelong anxiety and depression, then chances are it's really truly genetic. And yeah. so, for example, the low dopamine type, are you, are you someone that, you know, is, has that risky behaviour? Did it start when you were sort of at school? And if the answer is yes, then I'd say get to understand your genetics. Really, yeah. really know that. But if it happened as a result of an event, so you got sick because one of the things I think people don't really know is that the pathway that we use to deal with infection and inflammation and gut bugs and everything else, it's called the kynurenine pathway. But what it does is it steals tryptophan into that pathway to deal with the bugs. And when you steal tryptophan, you actually steal your serotonin. And that's why people get depressed when they've got illnesses, because unfortunately, they don't have enough to support their serotonin pathway. So things like 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is a precursor to serotonin, it's a naturally occurring amino acid, um, 
it, it can be very, very helpful for people in those incidences. So again, you can have an environmental depression or you can have a genetic depression or you can have a genetic depression that's made worse by environmental. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. So amino acids that we are meant to make like serotonin and um, uh, or tyrosine, tryptophan, all these amino acids we're meant to make mm-hmm. and meant to get from our food, um, we can then substitute in and out as we see where the deficiency might be. So we combine tests to know which are genetic. We then look at bloods. Mm-hmm. We then look at organic acids testing, which is like, what's your biochemistry here and now? What's mm-hmm. your body telling us right now that's either deficient or not? Right. And so you put all those together and come up with, okay, I can see what's going on. Yeah. I like to combine the genetic tests and then after that, follow up with a micronutrient test. Mm-hmm. And one of the companies I use is called SpectraCell. I have nothing to do with them. I just really love the way they do their tests. And I love the report they give you back because it basically is telling you what your cells are deficient in. Mm. And I was shocked to see, I'm a carnivore. So I eat a very bioavailable, nutrient-dense diet. Right. And so you would think that I'm getting all of this, um, all these amazing nutrients and they're just getting into my cells and everything's working. But because of my MTHFR genetic um, SNP, um, that's not the case. And I was shocked to see how deficient my cells were in so many um, functional nutrients like B12 Mm. and folate and a long list. There were probably 15 functional deficiencies, and then maybe another 10 borderline deficiencies. So I, for me to feel my best, I have to make a commitment to that lifestyle. I have to make a commitment to, to first finding out what's going on in my body genetically, find out what's going on on a cellular level. And then I have to figure out, well, what am I going to take and how am I going to work this into my lifestyle? And what are other lifestyle factors I need? I, I have had to learn how to really stay as stress-free as possible. I have had to alter my workouts. I know that weightlifting for someone like me with the MTHFR SNP is part of that equation. So I commit to weightlifting. Um, that fresh air, you know, there's certain lifestyle factors. And again, I'll, I'll um, refer back to Dirty Genes written by Dr. Ben Lynch. He goes over a whole protocol for all the most common um, genetic SNPs out there. And it's truly remarkable and it works. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so for me to um, help my clients find that that energy within themselves to make that commitment to be their own detective because no one's all, no one's going to do it for you. You have no. to be your own detective. You are the CEO of your body and you have to take charge and you cannot rely on your primary care physician to tell you everything that's going on with you. You have to dig. 100%. And that's why I've got um, prenatal courses and anxiety and depression, <clears throat> excuse me, depression courses because I really want people to be empowered to take control of their health. 
It's so, so important. You cannot let anyone else do it. 100%. Right. right. So while some people are walking around thinking, what's wrong with me? You know, why can't I get all this right? Why don't I feel good? There's, there's good reason. And it's yeah. not your fault, you know, or th there are things that were handed down to us through genetics, but guess what? There's, there's things to do to mitigate all of these symptoms. So let's, let's go back to the MTHFR. Cause I, I, I love that you are an expert in this field. I would like for you to break down exactly what the MTHFR gene is and how it relates to methyl groups. To me, understanding the concept of methyl groups and how they work with other genes or um, with our cellular health is very confusing. And hopefully okay. you have a really good analogy for this. <laughs> yes, all right. So let's go to the methyl group first. So okay. think of a methyl group as a carbon surrounded by three hydrogens and it's got a little open arm. And so that open arm is there to engage and switch on and off certain things. So it's like a little, think of it like a little buzzer that goes around the body and it's looking for um, something to attach to. And we have enzymes and genes in our body that has to have that little methyl buzzing around to connect to, to work. And we call those methyl transferases. And so anything that ends in an MT, like COMT, P-E-M-T, which is phosphatidylethanolamine methyl transferase, a long word, but it's an essential fat that makes our brain work, but it also makes our cellular membranes strong so we can get things in and out. We have things that make creatine we have um there's over 80 methyl transferases and without that little methyl group they can't do their job so what what our mthfr gene does is create a product called methyl folate <clears throat> and that methyl folate when it's sent to its next destination sends out its little methyl group and creates more, more little buzzy things for us to then engage in and get and connect. And so it's think of it like a master switch. It's actually allowing things to do their job, but it's also important in turning things off, like cancer-promoting genes are turned off with methylation. So methylation has the capacity to regulate a lot of our biochemistry, a lot of our cleaning up processes, our detoxification processes. Uh, as we said, we've talked extensively about methylation, but being able to clear out toxic estrogen, being able to create creatine, being able to um, convert our dopamine down certain pathways. These are really important processes that Without methylfolate donating its methyl group, it can't happen. So that's why the folic acid story is so important because folic acid will never create a methyl group. 
not in its mm. wildest imagination will it create a methyl group. What it's got to do is work all the way down the pathway, then use MTHFR, then make the methyl group. And within all of those steps, there's something called homocysteine. Yes. Tell us about the relationship because so many people, that's one test people see that come out on their blood work and it might be elevated. So their doctor might say, well, you've got elevated homocysteine, so you need to avoid eating all red meats and you need to take this and that and send them down a completely wrong pathway. Yep. And so homocysteine is... It's a, it's a marker of methylation in a way, because if homocysteine is elevated, we know straight away that your folate, your B12, your B6 and trimethylglycine are low. And homocysteine is important because if you think of it as a big cycle, homocysteine's job is to pick up that methyl group and convert it so we can make SAMI, our universal methyl donor. If homocysteine is too high, we know that that pathway is stagnant. It's not doing its job. It also puts us at cardiovascular risk and probably the only connection that the medical um, fraternity will acknowledge is MTHFR can cause elevation in homocysteine. However, we see more low homocysteine in chronic disease because that whole methylation cycle is just not doing its job. So mm -hmm. low homocysteine, so you're looking at an optimal level of between seven and eight. So if your homocysteine is sitting at three and four or it's sitting you know, above eight, you really want to get it within that seven to eight. That's the optimal. Right. And so it's really a marker of how are you going? Are you deficient in the nutrients or is your methylation cycle itself just not doing what it's meant to be doing? Mm. That's really interesting. Um, how does MTHFR affect the liver in terms of detoxification? Well, we have our downstream. So think of these pathways as all connected. We make the methylfolate, mm -hmm. we then make SAMI, and our job is then to shunt our homocysteine down that CBS pathway. We call it the CBS pathway, but it, essentially it's incredibly important to detox. That's where you make your cysteine. That's where you make your glutathione. That's where you make your taurine. These are all incredibly important things that help the liver detoxify now part of our job too is to look at well what's the capacity of someone to detoxify what what's happening with each of these pathways some people have true genetic snips in their ability to detoxify so glutathione just can't be made or they have you know deficiencies in b6 which doesn't stimulate the pathway or they've got deficiencies in taurine or sulfur because we have many important pathways that we detox. So I'm sure your listeners would know that we have a phase one, phase two, and phase three. But phase one is what we call the CYPs, the cytochrome P450s. 
And their job is really to break a toxin down. But phase two's job is to deal with it, bind it, get it out of the body and process it. So we have glycination, we have um, methylation, we have glutathionation, we have glucuronidation and, and we have sulfation. And so we can see all the SNPs in those pathways and say, all right, do you actually need help in this area? But if you don't have the methylation component, then a lot of this will be affected because you won't make glutathione. And glutathione is our number one detoxer. Yes. It's what we have to have. And as we age, glutathione production, along with the production of many other things in our body, decreases. Yeah. We just don't do it as well as we used to. Talk about the importance of glutathione though. And, and how can, if, if we are not good producers of glutathione, like myself, um, I get glutathione shots every 14 days, or I used to use a liposomal glutathione. So two of two delivery systems that are really good versus taking a capsule. Um, but tell us how, how important is glutathione to our overall health? It's, it's, critically important but I think the most important thing is just don't go out and take glutathione yeah because many many people their detox pathway is just jam shut and when I say jam shut there's a lot of inflammation going on their ability to detoxify is so compromised that if you go and stimulate with glutathione, they actually, and, and all these people with multiple chemical sensitivity, it's a classic example. Their ability to detoxify is so compromised that if you try and detoxify, you're going to send them into a worse state. So the first job you've always got to do is make sure you open your detox pathways. Are they open enough that if I then give the other supplements like glutathione, can I detoxify? And so that's a really important component of saying, okay, what's going on that's causing this block? And often it can be um, phosphatidylcholine deficiency. It can be um, hydroxyl radicals that are building up, causing oxidative stress. It can be uncontrolled inflammation or histamine release due to mold or Lyme or infections or bacteria or whatever it happens to be. So unless you deal with that, you can't really go in with your glutathione. I've always been a really firm believer that you start with N-acetylcysteine. It's doing a way different job. Um, it's not only helping create sulfur, but it's creating um, taurine through that pathway of supporting it. And it's a precursor to glutathione. But the first thing you've got to do is ask yourself, can you recycle that glutathione? Because when you use good glutathione is called reduced glutathione. Bad glutathione is called oxidized glutathione. So if you are, are constantly pumping in glutathione and you don't know whether or not you can recycle it, you have a problem. So the recycling and making sure that those pathways are good and well-supported and looking at the genetics around 
your ability to recycle glutathione, I think is critically important before you put glutathione in. So selenium is really important. NADH, which is a B3 derivative, is really important to be able to recycle. And so many people have SNPs in the glutathione peroxidase, which is one of the major enzymes that is helping in that recycling process. To understand that, you really need to do your genetic work first and say, okay, is this a problem? Selenium is the cofactor. So you need to increase your selenium and make sure that that's working and you're taking the pressure off that pathway by reducing inflammation first. That's key when you're introducing glutathione. And so for people listening right now, we're talking about a lot of supplementation, but if we look to whole foods nutrition, is that alone good enough if we eat foods that are glutathione rich and what are those and what about other nutrients so you know i've always said we you've got to get your lifestyle set as the foundation for all the other things you're going to spend money on to work testing supplementation iv therapy iv therapy peptide therapy whatever whatever it is that you're choosing to use right we need that foundation of a really solid lifestyle but what are your thoughts on that in terms of foods, nutrients, and the, absorb and the absorption? So <clears throat> my subset of clients are 90% chronic disease, um, infertility, anxiety, depression. They've been everywhere and they've got nowhere else to go. So we're like a last resort. Can I rely on food with those people? Absolutely not. I, I will 100% put them on a dedicated diet that I think is right for them at that point in time. Doesn't mean it's their diet for life. Mm -hmm. So no, diet will not do it. However, if we're talking about someone like you who has, you know your genetics, you're relatively healthy, you are doing the right thing, um, then yes, I think it can be. I would preface that by saying, though, it is so difficult for us to get the nutrients we now need from our diet. Even if we're eating the best organic products on the market, we still know that the soils are selenium deficient. We know that our diets are iodine deficient. So, you know, your testing of the nutrients is critically important because you have to, at any point, um, make sure that you are constantly checking. I do believe that as we age, we are compromised in our ability to make B12. We're compromised in our ability to make these nutrients anyway because our body just doesn't work as well. And so I do think that those sort of over 50s if you can do a nice multivitamin and some sort of detox support, I think it's incredibly important because our environment is not what it was when our grandparents were around. They didn't take supplements. They didn't need to because right. they were living from the ground, you know, to the plate, the farm to the plate. There was no one in between. They, they right. raised their own chickens. They were all organic. They didn't have packaged goods. They had good quality soils. It's so different. 
we are exposed to so many toxins every millisecond of every day, even if we are being completely pure, we are still exposed from the Wi-Fi to the radiation with the television, to the phones, to the plastics, to the food containers. Like, unfortunately, our environment is toxic. So I think we always have to support detox, always. And yeah. inflammation is key. And I do think keeping inflammation under control is, is the lifelong goal. Absolutely. And I don't think many people do that without some sort of supplement support. Yeah. So we're in year two of this pandemic and most people are drinking more alcohol. Maybe they're smoking more weed, taking more, um, CBD, THC, gummies, how does all, how do all of those things affect genetic SNPs? And let's just say you don't even know you have a genetic SNP. What are some of the symptoms or dangers in mixing those things in to our bodies? Yeah. And I think it's been an incredibly tough couple of years. And I have done probably about six um, presentations on COVID over the last two years. And people can find those on our YouTube channel um, and on our website. Because I think it's important to, for people to, to understand that many of the things that we can do to support ourselves through COVID and infection um, can be done naturally. And I think because it has been such a stressful year, I totally get that people are drinking and smoking and doing anything they can to pull themselves out. I mean, in Australia here, we've been locked down for so long and suicide rates have gone through the roof. So I think just stress, we know that stress chews up these methyl groups more than anything. And that stress has been astronomical over the last two years. And so I think you, you get into this rut of coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, just to sort of help you survive. But now we're coming out of it. We have to sort of reset and pull ourselves out because the stress on top of the diet, on top of the, um, the infection itself can actually shift us off our axis and, and make us fall again. So we really have to bring ourselves back to, okay, it's been a shitty two years. I need to regroup. I need to reset. What can I do? And I think one of the things that we've done with many of our patients is testing the inflammatory cytokines and really be looking at, well, what is the inflammation rate in this body? Because that's going to predispose you high homocysteine, um, your, your high inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha, if they're elevated, you're at a way higher susceptibility to getting COVID and getting really sick than if you don't. Having your vitamin D at a really good level um, is incredibly important. So knowing, doing your due diligence and saying, okay, just because you've had the vaccine 
doesn't mean you're going to be okay if you get COVID. That's one thing we do know. The vaccine is not going to help you if you are inflamed, have low vitamin D and have other issues. So you've got to get up. You've got to do your due diligence. You've got to get rid of the stress stressors now that we're starting to come out of it, get back to exercise. And it's a really hard thing to do. When you've fallen into that hole, it's actually very, very difficult to bring yourself out. And if I turned around and said to one of my clients, okay, you've got to do it all, you've got to do it all today, they wouldn't do it. But if I said, okay, let's just, you know, you're having five drinks a day, let's just cut that down to two, but I want you to have two nights without any. So maybe Sunday, Monday night. Start slow and give yourselves tangible goals. If you're not doing any exercise, just say, all right, I'm going to do 15 minute walk, seven and a half minutes out, seven and a half minutes back. And I'm just going to do that twice a week. That's doable. That's achievable. Grab a friend, grab a partner and go for a 15 minute walk. It's little steps that can get you back because in the overwhelming, horrible two years, it can be really hard to get back. Mm, those are really good um, small steps to take. That's exactly how I coach. You don't have yeah. to be successful at every single step. Just start the steps. Just start. That's right. What, but is there is there a detrimental effect to people who are using CBD or CBN? Because we have the endocannabinoid system in our body and it's a healthy system and it's a system we want to stay healthy and we want to support it. So, but how, how will those affect if you have a genetic SNP? And is there a genetic SNP that it will affect more than the others? In the cannabinoid pathway? Yeah. Yeah, so our cannabinoid receptors are um, incredibly important SNPs to look at because if people have polymorphisms in those, then the CBD can be extremely helpful. I think the CBD um, has its place. And I think those people that have the pain, you know, they've got the pain and the sleep issues, I think as a short term, it's absolutely brilliant. I think with the cancer, it's... absolutely essential. From a daily perspective, though, it's incredibly important that if someone is smoking dope on a regular basis, right, they're smoking marijuana, they're doing it every single day, but you have a fast compt, Mm. then you could end up psychotic Mm. and schizophrenic. So you have to know if you're just, and, and I've got a gorgeous young man that um, I've seen for a while and he, he was just doing it to be social. He was smoking every day and he's got a fast comp. And I had to eventually say, look, you're a young man. The research, here's a copy of the research. The research says If you do this on a daily basis with your genetic SNP, you are six times more likely to end up with schizophrenia. Is that Mm. what you want? Mm. And you've got to sometimes be tough, but if you're smoking marijuana, for example, and you've got no concept of your genetic SNPs and 
I think it's a danger. I really, really do. That's really interesting. Um, a few weeks ago, I did a podcast with uh, these two care advocates at one of the Chicago dispensaries, and we talked solely about CBD, CBN. And in order for CBD and CBN to cross the blood-brain barrier, it needs to be connected with THC. Yeah. So on one hand, the CBD and CBN could be doing good for you, but the THC component would not work for you. Yeah, that's right. And it's a whole minefield in itself, mm-hmm. these cannabinoid SNPs and how does it inter how does it interrelate with your dopamine SNPs? And you know, it is, it's a fascinating science and it's a whole science in itself. Is there any, are there any studies that have been done on genetic SNPs and addiction, drug addiction? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the COMT is the one that really the is one. probably the, the number one. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Very interesting. That could be a whole nother podcast. It could. It could. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, there's so many areas that are so fascinating that you start to understand are really valuable in getting, getting into depth because it can just be life-changing. As I said in the very beginning, it's life-changing for some people to actually understand and know this and go, I wish I knew that 40 years ago. Like, Absolutely. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I work with a lot of young adults in college and I would say 80% of them are on SSRIs for anxiety, depression, what, whatever it is. There's a common, there's a cocktail of pharmaceuticals. And mm. then on top of that, they smoke a lot of weed. So they've got the pharmaceuticals on one side and then they've got the self-medicating on the other side. And I, I'm always just so intrigued by the balance, how they, how they find that balance from themselves utilizing pharmaceuticals and marijuana and what, and what in the body is telling them that's the combination that works for them and why. Yeah. I think I really believe that we need to look at people with addictions with a completely new light yeah it's there's nothing to do with being weak it's nothing to do with having you know problems it's it's your genetics and this is this is where I think psychiatry falls down because you can't talk yourself out of a genetic problem you can't talk yourself out of low dopamine it it just it's just not possible right it might help you work through other things but is it going to talk are you going to talk yourself out of having low dopamine no you're not yeah very very intriguing so carolyn i've i've had you for an hour and it's been fascinating and i'm definitely inviting you back on but i have two remaining questions for you what are three things the listeners can do today to find out more about their overall health and their genetics? What, what can they, how can they start thinking about this? I, if they're interested, I have a lot of um, different webinars on my website, mthfrsupport.com.au, which will really help them even just, I've got a webinar on what is MTHFR. Um, we have a YouTube channel with all sorts of presentations and webinars, just familiarize yourself with 
things that resonate with you. I think the most important thing is to understand, do you have an issue that needs to be addressed? Because many people will listen to this and say, this is a really interesting conversation, but I don't think it really relates to me because, you know, I don't have any major issues. And then you have others that go, well, I've had depression my whole life. So this has got to be something I need to look into. And someone else will say, well, there's miscarriages in my family. So this is maybe I do have MTHFR. So I'd say recognize and accept that there may be an issue that you need to address. And the first thing to do is get in touch with a practitioner that can help you navigate it. Don't try and do it yourself. It's really difficult. It's complicated. There's too many interconnecting pieces. So find a practitioner um, that will help you. We we see patients all around the world. We're we're all Skype. Um, So just find someone that resonates with you, that you feel confident to be able to discuss this and say, look, what you said on the podcast really resonated I do have an issue with depression and I'd like to see if it's a problem. Or, you know, I had had a hysterectomy at the age of, you know, 52 and I'm still not feeling myself. I've got a lot of weight gain. Could I have the COMPT gene? Could I have problems Mm -hmm. getting rid of toxic estrogen? And I think, as you quite rightly said, it's, it's never too late to start addressing things. Don't ever think I'm too old. We have 70, 80, 90 year olds that see us. It is never, ever, don't put up with anything. Just address it and find the right people you can to help you. Oh, that is such good advice because how many, I'm just going to speak to the women out there, how many women have gone to their primary care physician or their OBGYN complaining about this and that and their doctor looking at them and saying, listen, that's just part of the process. You're going through perimenopause or you're postmenopausal. And that's just, you know, it's just aging. That's what they get, say. Get it's com- just getting right. old. It's just getting old and get comfortable with it. Absolutely not. I'm going to be 54 and I'm rocking it. But let me tell you, it is a daily, daily practice. And that practice is different for everybody across the board. But I, I make the commitment because I reap the benefits on the other side. And so if any doctor says that, you know what I do? Get up and walk out. Absolutely get a new doctor. That's one of the things I work with um, with all of my clients. I help them become better advocates for themselves. So Mm -hmm. I send them in with a very comprehensive lab list and I I prep them to have the conversation so that they can speak intelligently with their doctor about whatever it is they want to speak about. And I say, if your doctor is not open to hearing you, won't make the time and won't help you get the test done. There's lots of other doctors out there. Of course there are. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So my last question for you is, what are your top three supplements or foods that you would recommend for almost everybody across the board? Oh, okay. B12, 100%. And, and if you're and, and wait and with B12, if you are a vegan or a vegetarian, like Carolyn was saying in the beginning of the podcast, you must supplement if you're not going to change your diet. Hundred percent. And if I can't convince you to get rid of that vegan and vegetarian diet, then I'm going to make you have an injection every single week of your life. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's B12 probably mm-hmm. number one. N-acetylcysteine, I think, is my one of my faves because 
it not only has a huge impact on mental health, um, but it is an anti-inflammatory. It gets rid of glutamate levels in the brain. It's very balancing and supportive of our detox pathway. And I use it in, um, I use it for neurological issues probably more than I do for detox. So I love that. So for the listeners, what she's talking about is NAC. So sometimes we refer to it as NAC and that's exactly what she's referring to. Yeah, NAC. So B12, NAC NAC. and um, acetyl L-tyrosine because it supports that low dopamine type. Mm. So we make our own, we make our own acetyl L-tyrosine because I couldn't get it here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Do not con, um, confuse it with L-tyrosine. L-tyrosine does not work. It's got to be the acetylated version. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. So they're Are, probably my three tops. Love that. Well, thank you. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me. I'm absolutely going to uh, have you on again. You were just so amazing and how you delivered the information for me and for my listeners. So I so appreciate that. Um, I am going to put into the show notes, all of your contact information and links to your YouTube. I've watched your YouTube videos. I've watched things. I've read some of your blogs on your website. Everything is just so thorough, so easy to read and understand and really just um, helps people process the information. So thank you so much. Enjoy. What are you in? You're in summer now in Australia, right? Well, we are, but it's trying to get there. It's horrible. (laughs) It's been raining, cold and just terrible. So I'm really praying that we get some nice warm weather. Well, I'm in Chicago and um, we are waiting for winter, like the snow and all that stuff to come settling in, which can be fun, but is also kind of a drag. (laughs) I, I love Chicago. I love it. I don't know. I'm not a very good winter person. Don't know if I could cope with your winter, but I've been there in summer and I just loved it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a great city. Great food. Yeah, great food. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And I will be in touch. And everyone is just going to so enjoy all this information that we got into. Oh, thanks, Jill. Look, I I really love talking about this because I just think it's so important. I love the opportunity. I really you know, thank you for inviting me because I think if we can just change one person with this conversation, I think it's well worth it. And just my own experience with me and my five kids who all have genetic SNPs, um, it's been a game changer getting on a new protocol. And each one of our protocols is different, by the way. It does not manifest itself the same way from one person to, to the other. No, that's right. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you all for tuning in and I'll be back for more podcasts. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.